My name is Andrew Tate, and this is Season 1, Episode 16 of Let's Not Meet, a true horror podcast. This is a story of some of the unsettling events I went through during my college years, as well as the most amazing example of the bro sixth sense I have ever witnessed. So without further ado, meet Kevin. Kevin was a colleague of mine and was in the same group as me, which meant that we had maybe five to six subjects per year together. Kevin was odd. Not that there was something wrong with him, Physically, he was adorable, a bit nerdy, on the shorter side, the scrawny side as well, with blonde hair, big blue eyes, and three fluffy hairs on his chin instead of facial hair. If I had to compare him to something, I'd say he looked like a cute, soft baby chicken if baby chickens were mentally inclined to grow into serial killers. But more on that later. At first, I didn't really even notice him. There was a lot of people in my class. Everything was new, and I personally did not know anyone except for a guy named Harper, whom I knew from my sports days, as we often competed against each other, exchanging colorful insults on the track, and then we would go to get drinks together. Harper will be important later on, trust me. So as I've said, I only knew Harper there, And there were only six other girls in my class, as I've attended classes that held little interest among my female college population. During that time, I made friends and got very chummy with three more geeky guys, Zachary, whom I even casually dated for a short time, Steve, we realized our mothers went to college together too, so instant friendship, and Rick, with whom I shared many interests. So, to count it out, important guys so far, Harper, Zachary, Steve, Rick. These are important. These would later become my personal army. And then there was Kevin. Damn cute Kevin. Whom I made the mistake of asking if he had any notes picked up from the first half of a lecture I missed because I overslept. In Kevin's speak, the sentence, hey... Got the notes from this morning? Apparently translated to, I have interest in you, oh magnificent Kevin. Nothing would make me happier knowing that I've caught your eye, so please make sure I'm never left without your presence again. I can't bear it. I borrowed his notes, partially copied them, and returned his notebook back. What I didn't see was that Kevin then sniffed the notebook when I handed it back to him. Zachary noticed it first, and kind of snorted and laughed about it later, because my first reaction to it, when he told me, was to sniff myself and see if I stank or something. I was young and naive then, so sniffing was less, what's wrong with him, and more, what's wrong with me? And that's where it all went downhill. Over the next few weeks, Kevin would always be there, 
never talking to anyone precisely, just kind of staring at me when we were in class, when we had breaks, and went for coffee to the shop outside. Then he started showing up for classes we did not attend together, and said he simply arrived too early for his later classes. He never participated. He just sat there, in the back. Also, Kevin had sort of an aura about him, like you didn't have to look at the door to know when he entered the room. You just felt his eyes on the back of your head and kind of wished for a shower. Anyways, I don't worry too much about it, until one day. I went to the women's bathroom during a break. I did my business, went to the front section to wash my hands, and Kevin came in. I was alone. Kevin turned, closed the door behind him, and locked them. Needless to say, I was confused and unsure of what to do, so I stared at him and asked him if he needed something. Hi, he said, then proceeded with, how are you? Like he hasn't just locked himself in the women's bathroom with me for no fathomable reason. I realized something was very, very wrong and attempted not to panic, managed to keep a nonchalant expression and turned towards the mirror so I could still see him and pretended to fix my makeup. Fine, I said and spoke no more. I could see Kevin fidgeting, playing with the key nervously, and after a long, uncomfortable silence, which felt like an eternity, I heard a loud banging from the other side of the door. It was Harper and Steve. Harper yelling something like, Kevin, get your scrawny ass over here. Open that door or I swear to God, in the next ten seconds, the door ain't going to be the only thing I'm breaking. I could hear Steve behind him sounding a bit panicked, telling him to move since he managed to get a spare key. Kevin paled and stepped away. The key he had falling somewhere on the floor. Steve and Harper unlocked the door, and Harper jumped on Kevin like a damn primate and knocked him to the floor, while Steve and Rick, who was there as well, got inside and all but dragged me out of the bathroom area. None of them wanted to tell me what or why or how any of that happened, but I pushed at the weakest link, Rick, when we were alone and found uh, that the whole hour prior to all of that, Rick overheard Kevin asking one of the campus students, the guys who get some extra cash if they help with paperwork, fixing and cleaning the campus, for the ladies' bathroom key and paying him for it. Rick didn't know why the hell Kevin would need that key, but knew that Kevin was a weirdo, so he figured it couldn't be good. Later on, Steve was looking for me and asked Rick if he had seen me, and stuff kind of clicked for Rick. They asked around, and people told them they saw me go into the bathroom area and that I didn't come out yet. More confirmed they saw Kevin going in there as well and joked that we must have had a makeout session. Steve immediately connected the dots. Harper overheard him talking to Rick, and they went to break me free from Kevin's affections, while Steve ran to get the extra key from the janitor. Kevin appeared with a lightly black eye in class two days later, and just wishing to forget the whole thing, I pretended he didn't exist.
I wish this was the end of it. Maybe a week or two went by. I figured he learned his lesson. He's leaving me alone. But then he got the wind in his sails back, and for some reason he proceeded with attempting to sit next to me in class. He was so insistent that Zachary got involved, and now the guys, Harper, Zachary, Stephen, Rick, made a timetable. So two and two would attend classes at all times when I was there, so each could sit on either side of me. I never even asked them to do this. They insisted. After a few failed attempts, Kevin gave up and settled for sitting in the back, glaring at my back and the two guys on duty that day. I wish this was the end of it, but two weeks later, Kevin either didn't show up for class or left early. I hoped that he had found some other interest and that it was finally over. Hell no. I noticed Kevin was now following me to the bus station. It took just one time to see him standing inconspicuously behind the newspaper stand to freak out and call Steve as he lived nearby. Steve picked me up and drove me home. The next morning, Harper called me around 9 a.m. and went, Are you in my class at 10 a.m. today? Yeah. Pack your shit and wait for me at the end of your street. Kevin is waiting for you at the bus station. Steve just called me. This went on for some five days, as the guys extended their bro service to now accompanying me literally at all times before, during, and after class. These four dude bros of mine were like the four horsemen of the apocalypse, all business and vengeance, and it was amazing. And they have probably saved me from a lot more problems with cute Kevin. That day, Kevin showed up to class looking somewhat roughed up, but now stared at me with so much hate that I could barely cope. And finally, after some sound advice from Harper and Rick, I decided to bring this shit to the college authorities. The pro dean immediately transferred Kevin to a completely different group, so our classes never overlapped again. I stopped seeing Kevin all the time and reached my final year in college. By now, Zachary and Steve moved away. Harper finished it early and no longer attended classes. So it was only me and Rick by now. But it was okay since Kevin was no longer there. I wish that was the end of it. Rick and I finished college, graduated and decided to celebrate by visiting a medieval flair in Rick's hometown that summer. We agreed to get some drinks for old time's sake. All was well. We had a great time and we toured the fair a bit and suddenly Rick, the sweet, polite Rick, goes, Son of a bitch! Ain't that fucking Kevin? It was fucking Kevin. Goddamn cute Kevin is there, staring at us, then turns on his heel and leaves. We saw him a few more times, I started to panic, thinking that he's following me again, so Rick was already dialing a few of his friends to come over, but Kevin suddenly got lost, and I never saw him again. So carry on, Kevin, you creepy little chicken. I hope you learned to function in society by now.
Years ago, when I was still a teenager, my friend Justin and I would often go longboarding at night, as my friends were quite the night owls. We loved the freedom of almost never seeing another soul on the roads or the paths that we frequented. Even when using the main roads, it would be very rare to see a car out so late in such a rural area, and you could see and hear them coming from very far away due to their headlights and the noise of the vehicle disrupting the peaceful silence of the night. We were really into it at the time, and would often ride our boards for miles and miles, sometimes not arriving home until the sun was up. One particular night, we decided to ride a few miles away from our usual back roads to take one of our favorite hidden routes. It began with a narrow, paved path that was the only piece of land separating two sides of a long lake. It would often sink under due to the rain, and we wanted to seize the opportunity to use it before it rained and went underwater again. It was roughly two miles long and was extremely relaxing to ride through due to the scenery. After making it to the end of the lake, we decided to continue moving and turn into a very close path that leads directly into a densely wooded wilderness preservation. As we came up to the first hill, we looked down at the bottom into the complete blackness. We both noticed what appeared to be a tiny moving ball of dim light down there. It moved so strangely, and it was extremely difficult to make out what it was. Rather than shine our flashlight down, we curiously watched for a few moments, whispering to each other about what it could possibly be. All at once, that small light turned into multiple blinding lights and extremely loud revving sounds, overwhelming our senses that had become accustomed to the dark and silence. Acting purely on fear, we instantly turned around and ran as fast as we could, hearing yelling and revving gaining behind us. By sheer luck, we managed to run off the path into a very dark, very overgrown hole in the side of a hill, overlooking where we had just come from. We decided to hide in the natural dugout of this hill, hoping the plants and the darkness would be enough to protect us from whatever was happening out there. We watched our pursuers right up to where we had originally been standing. There were four men, two on four-wheelers and two on full-sized motorcycles. They were yelling at each other about something, but we couldn't make out what they were saying due to the distance we had covered. We felt safe enough to whisper very softly to each other and speculate who these people could be. Our first thought was that they might be park rangers of some kind, although we had never seen one here in the many times that we had been through, and honestly, we doubted that this county had the budget or even the desire to have anyone patrol the deep woods at night. Besides that, these men were on vehicles entirely inappropriate for the paved bike trails, and they were very angry about something. They called out to us for a while, yelling things like, we know you're out there, and we can see you. Come on out. We stayed silent and decided to call their bluff instead of running. Eventually, we clearly heard one of the men yell, Find them now, and they smashed a bottle. That had erased any hope we had of these men just being park rangers.
We watched them split up, each of them going a different way down a series of paths on their vehicles, including the path that we came from. It took us what felt like ages to even move. We were frozen in terror inside the dugout, watching the lights from the vehicles travel through the woods and the paths, one of them already coming full circle and passing the point he started from. I thought about calling for help, but I was too afraid to open my phone in fear that the smallest amount of light would give away our location. After waiting for the lights of the vehicles to reach their farthest distance yet, we finally summoned up the nerve to get up and try to run somewhere far enough from these people to safely make a call. We ran as hard and fast as we could through the woods, since their headlights gave away their location on these paths, we would hide again whenever we felt they were getting too close. Our available hiding spots were getting progressively worse as the woods became less dense, and the fear I felt waiting for them to drive past us, while basically only being covered in leaves and plants, may still be unmatched to this day. Finally, we emerged from the woods onto the intersection of two main roads, far from where we started. We ducked down into the ditch to call for help. When I opened my phone, I noticed I had recently missed calls from one of our other friends, Connor, who we were supposed to meet up with after our long board excursion. I called him and frantically asked where he was. Luck was with us again. He hadn't given up on our plans despite us ignoring him, and was only a few miles away, already heading in our direction. I gave him the names of the two streets we were near the corner of and explained that he needed to pick us up right away. He agreed and sped over to us while Justin and I waited in hiding. Thankfully, Connor arrived before those men did. We bolted into the back seats of his car, yelling for him to get out of there, and he took off. Relief doesn't begin to describe what I felt being safely driven home after what I had just experienced. After explaining everything that happened to Connor, we ended up just moving on with our night and decided not to call the police. We figured they would be gone by the time any kind of officer made it out there, and that we would only be putting ourselves at risk by admitting to breaking the law by taking those paths so late at night. I still have no idea what happened or who those people were. I've been told all kinds of theories from friends and family that have heard this story. Some think we walked right up to a huge drug deal. Justin and I later admitted to each other that when the revving started and we couldn't see, our minds both went straight to chainsaw-wielding horror movie serial killer. I suppose it could have been much worse. Frustratingly enough, whatever those men thought we saw that made them want to catch us so badly... We never actually saw. We'll never really know, I suppose. This happened a couple of years ago. I don't like talking about it that much. It just never seemed like a big deal to me as a kid. But the older I get, the more I think about it, and 
the more it haunts me. It was New Year's Eve 2011, and me and a couple of my friends were having a sleepover. My friend's neighborhood was relatively new, so there were still houses being built all around him. We were going to stay up until midnight, but it was only about 7 o'clock, and we wanted something to do in the meantime. One of my friends had the idea of going to play hide-and-seek in one of the houses being built. We asked his mom, and she said that it was okay, but she gave us her phone to hold on to and told us to text my friend's dad in case anything happened. We took the phone, got our coats on, and headed outside. The house was only a hundred yards away from the front porch, so it wasn't that far of a walk. We jogged across the street since it was relatively windy out and we didn't want to stay in the cold air. We decided to play in pairs, but if you were hiding, you had to stay with your teammate. I volunteered to be the seeker. So the two hiders headed into the house while me and the other seeker began to count. Once I hit 60, the game began. The house was dark and cold, and the only source of light was the bright moon shining through every window and door. We were standing in the empty shell of someone's home. No inner walls had been put up yet, and there was no carpeting on the floors. The only thing on the inside were dozens of thick wooden beams. I told my friend I'd take the first floor if he wanted to take the second, and he agreed. He walked past me and up the steps. I was now alone. I walked around the first floor with a smile on my face, braver than ever. I called out the names of my friends, trying to hold in my laughter. Since the house was so dark, you could only see about five feet in front of you, so I made sure to check every nook and cranny. That's when I found the basement. It was a dark, eerie hole in the floor that looked like it would swallow anything that walked into it. They couldn't have gone down there, I thought to myself. There's no way. But I had checked the entire first floor and heard nothing from my friend upstairs. So I sucked it up and began down the steps. I walked down slowly, taking careful steps because it was nearly impossible to see anything. My footsteps echoed throughout the dark room, and I was only able to see the tips of my fingers. I walked slowly, listening for any type of noise in the darkness. Then I heard something. A slow moving of feet. Hello? I said, following with my friend's names. No response. For a quick second, I contemplated, turning back around, but I knew if this was them, they wouldn't say anything back. I called out their names again. No response. A smile came across my face. I had found them. Come on out, I said as I walked towards the source of the noise. I heard you guys move. I began to see the silhouette of something in the corner of the basement. It was a person, but only one. Didn't we say the hiders had to stay together? I said to the person. They didn't move. They stayed crouched down in one corner, facing the wall. I began to walk closer, fully convinced that it was one of my friends. Hey, I found you. You're out, I said. At that moment, I just wanted to get out of the basement. I continued to walk closer. I still wasn't close enough to make out any body features. Whoever it was, 
was breathing rather loudly, loud enough for me to hear it from a couple of feet away. Me being the naive kid I was, still thinking it was one of my friends just trying to scare me, I smiled again. I didn't know what else to do, but I wouldn't take a step closer. That's when the breathing was overpowered by laughter and loud footsteps from upstairs. I found you, I heard through the ceiling. I quickly turned around and ran back upstairs to see who was found, hoping whoever was in the basement would follow me. I waited on the first floor as I heard them coming down the steps. I got them both, my friend said as he came into my view. I stood there, a confused look on my face. How did you find both of them? I thought to myself. But to my surprise, here came both of the hiders walking from upstairs. My heart dropped. I felt my blood rush out of my face and my legs go weak. I slowly turned around and stumbled toward the front door without saying a word. Where are you going? They asked. I couldn't open my mouth to speak. There was only one thought in my head at this time. Who was in the basement with me? I was only able to utter the words, There's someone in the basement. I made it to the front door, slowly turned the knob, and slipped outside, and began running back up to my friend's house. I wanted to get as far away from that house as possible. I began feeling tears welling up in my eyes. I made it to the front porch and collapsed, barely being able to catch my breath because I was so hysterical. I lay there for what felt like ages when I heard my friends come up behind me. I don't even remember what they were saying. All I could think about was the person in the basement. After I calmed down, I told them what had happened, and they all seemed to freak out at me. The fact that I talked directly to the person for so long is what scared me so much. I decided not to tell his parents since we figured they wouldn't believe us. I didn't sleep for a week after that. I still have nightmares about it sometimes. A few months after that night, the house was finished and a family finally moved in. I never heard any complaints about the squatter or anything. The older I get, the more I realize it was probably just another kid in the neighborhood trying to scare us, but still, it's pretty scary to me. So to the person in the basement, let's not meet again. This happened circa 1971 or 1972, when my mother was around 14 or 15 years old. The incident occurred in a heavily wooded area in Alabama, close to Birmingham. My mother is the oldest of five children. She has three sisters and a brother, who is the baby of the family. One weekend in the cooler months of the fall, my grandfather decided to take the whole family, my grandmother, my mother, and all my aunts and uncles, so seven people total, into the woods for target practice with a rifle. My mother grew up quite poor, and they didn't always live in the best of neighborhoods, so my grandfather wanted to teach the kids how to defend themselves with the rifle if need be. Like I said, 
It was later in the fall, so the trees were bare and there were a lot of leaves on the ground. The wooded area was just off the dirt road, so this was a fairly rural area that they were in. Since it was so far off the beaten path, my grandfather became startled when he heard the roar of a car engine so deep in the woods. My mom remembers the car being a blue Ford Galaxy. Despite the fact that my grandfather had a gun, he totally freaked out and told my grandma and the kids to hide under a pile of leaves in the woods. He hid with them. The man in the driver's seat got out, dragged a woman's body out of the car, and dumped her there in the woods and drove away. After my grandfather was sure that the man had gone, everyone came out of hiding and the woman sat up and stared them straight in the face. My grandfather asked the woman if she needed help. She said no, she would be fine. She didn't seem to be injured and obviously didn't want help. She hadn't put up a fight with the man when he was dragging her out of the car. She must have known him, maybe. So my grandfather cut the shooting lesson short and decided to rush the kids home to safety. On the trail back to the dirt road where my grandfather had parked their car, they passed the man in the blue Ford Galaxy driving out of the woods. My mom looked over and noticed that he had a huge machete lying across the front seats right beside him. My grandfather made sure that the man could see that he was carrying a rifle, but everyone was careful not to give away what they had just seen. The man struck up small talk with my grandfather, asked him how he was doing and what they were doing in the woods. My grandfather explained that he had just taken his family out for some target practice with the rifle. The man told him to have a nice day and continued driving. The next day, my grandfather went out to that spot in the woods. There was not a body there. However, he did find the woman's wig, her purse, some Kleenex, and a pair of eyeglasses. He collected the items and then took them home. According to my grandfather, that area of the woods is known for having shallow graves and being a dumping site for bodies. My mother became hysterical when he walked in the door carrying that stuff. She started screaming. He killed that lady. He killed that lady. My grandfather ended up taking the items to the police station, but my mom doesn't think anything ever came of it. She never heard anything else about it after that. Well, she did hear one other thing about it, I guess. Early the next morning, my grandmother called my mom when she arrived at work. Just before the kids left for school, she told them not to take the bus that day, that she would come home and pick them up and drive them to school. When my mom asked why, my grandmother said, because that car is waiting for you at the bus stop. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Let's Not Meet, a true horror podcast. This week you have heard Cute Kevin by The Squishy Stapler. I Was Hunted in the Woods at Night by Zangon595. 
The Person in the Basement by Big Man E, and finally, a retelling of The Murderer in the Woods by Cold Beer on Sunday. Yesterday, I sat down with Jeremy Collins and had a great time during an interview for his podcast titled Podcasts We Listen To. Check that out this week at podcastswelistento.libsyn.com. Also, I'd like to say happy birthday to my cousin Dwayne, my best friend, and basically my brother, and also listener Michael. Happy birthday, guys. I'll see you next week for a brand new episode of Let's Not Meet. Let's Not Meet.